Welcome back to Omni Shambles, the highest rated podcast on the entirety of the internet. That's right, right? Yeah. With me today, we have Swin again. How's it going? And we have a special guest. We have Jason Miller, former senior comms advisor to the Trump 2016 campaign and the communications director for the Trump transition team and a Republican strategist, communications specialist, guru, whatever you want your title to be. But thank you for coming on the podcast today. And it's a good day to have you on the podcast because today's focus is going to be about the politics of scandal, or I should put it more differently, political scandals and how you can circumvent them. So the jumping off point for those who are unaware is what's happening in Richmond, Virginia right now. Ralph Northam, the governor, Democrat, he's been on the job for what, two years now? A little bit, no, a year and a half. And he got into trouble for two things. One was for comments on abortion policy. And the second was for a yearbook photo from his medical school days in which it appeared that he was either in blackface or KKK garb. Northam initially said, yeah, I apologize for that. But then he said it wasn't him. A day later. A day later, (laughs) which was weird to me because maybe it's not him, but you certainly wouldn't know if you were pictured in one of those. He also cops to it like 20 hours or 12 hours before. So then then this is where we're going to jump off. Then comes this very surreal press conference in which he basically is saying, I am not going to resign despite virtually everybody in politics calling on me to resign. And then this happens. You said that the competition in San Antonio was a dance competition? Yes. And it was that you danced the moonwalk? That's right. Are you still able to moonwalk? Uh, <coughs> inappropriate circumstances. My wife says inappropriate circumstances. <laughs> <laughs> that, that one goes into the canon of weird press conferences. Now, the context I think we need here is that he basically said, I wasn't the one in blackface in that picture, but I may have put shoe polish on my face at one point in time to impersonate Michael Jackson and do the moonwalk at a party. A reporter asked him, do you moonwalk still? He tr- thought about it briefly, I think. And then he decided with at, his wife. At a public not press conference. It. The way he goes, oh, yeah. <laughs> I, I never heard that until just now without the video. <laughs> it's way better. And his facial expression was basically like, really, he thought about doing it. He was well, he was looking around. Yeah, he was, like, he was looking around. Should 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 here? So we got to bring in Jason off the bat here. You've worked for a number of politicians in your entire career. Have you experienced a press conference like that? I have never seen anything quite like what we saw this weekend with Governor Northam. And uh, first, got to say off the top, I mean, I think this is pretty egregious. I think yeah. that someone would probably remember if they appeared in blackface or a Klan outfit or something like that. And I think that he's absolutely lost the ability, I believe, to govern the state of Virginia, uh, the Commonwealth of Virginia, excuse me. And How dare you? I know. Respect Virginia. It's, People of Virginia take very deep pride in they do, being they the do. Commonwealth. Okay. I mean, it almost seems like every Democrat in the country currently agrees with you, except for Ralph Northam. Or maybe Joe Lieberman, but I don't think he's a Democrat anymore. It went so far into the bizarre and strange territory, and certainly not the first press conference that we've seen in politics have gone into the strange and bizarre. But for Northam to come out and apologize, as you correctly pointed out, but then to come back and say, well, actually, it wasn't me, and I'm paraphrasing slightly, but it wasn't me in the photo, but I'm not sure which one I may or may not have been. But Kari Sellers made a great point on CNN the other night. What the heck kind of 
med school is this where they think that this is okay for the yearbook but i'd even say who the heck was the editor for I this know, yearbook? Right? because again someone's going to find the editor and it, do an interview at this there were other soon, right? there were other blackface pictures uh, or at least one other picture in addition to the one on the northam page but the bottom line on this is i think that northam has some serious well, okay. issues here i don't see how he can push forward in this so this is what i, I really want to get from you is like Let's say you're a communication specialist. You know what this is sort of like. Moment of crisis. How does this happen behind the scenes? So Northam, his office gets word that this page has been published online and they got to figure out what to do about it. So as a comm specialist, let's say you're in the room. What's happening? Bring us to the room in that moment and how chaotic or what kind of strategic response they're trying to put out there. Well, the first thing they're trying to figure out, is this real or not? And it sounds like by the apology on Friday and then the non-denial, denial, whatever it was, exactly what we saw on Saturday, that the answer was changing. They don't really know what this was. Right. Clearly, his political opponents from 2017 had not found it. Other folks in the media had not found it. So when they're presented with this, they're trying to determine, is this real? Is this authentic? And the, that explains why he didn't respond immediately. I think so. I think that's probably where they're coming from. But as they're looking through, I mean, this isn't some rumor innuendo. I mean, you're looking at a yearbook page that has Ralph Northam, governor of Virginia, right next to a pretty offensive picture. And right there off the top, I mean, Northam should know, was that something that he was in or not in? And if you have to think about it, then that's probably about the worst thing that you know. And as a communications professional, When you're working with someone who's, whether it's in corporate America, whether it's in politics, that answer right off the top, was this you or was this not you, you know right there and you build your strategy around it. Right. And the fact that Northam's kind of all over the map and all over the place. Well, what kind of strategies do you have? I mean, I feel like you could do contrition, you can do denial, you can do I beg forgiveness. You know, there seems to be a few options there. Just as I mean, I'm putting the morality aside of this just as a strategic political decision. Obviously, it's different on what this scenario is. I mean, something like this, you know, it's going to become national news in a huge way. And there's not really a way to ultimately survive when you start talking about your own political base. And also, too, I think just the the morality side of it where people look and say, can we follow this person as our governor? Right. But hypothetically, let's say if Northam came back and said, this wasn't me. This Mm -hmm. wasn't me in the picture. I've never seen this before. That takes you down one set of where you're putting up your defense, you're getting your allies, where your third-party validators, people who are in school with you at the same time to say this is not true, pushing back on it. And you think his team was like in those moments, those first moments, like trying to line up the validators, trying to find the yearbook editor, calling around to other Democrats in the state? It sounds like from the, again, just from the public reports, it sounds like Northam was doing a lot of that on his own, or at least he was very confused as to what the case was on Friday because then his answer changed going into Saturday. So when you're in something like that and you realize that the principal just has no answer to it and no response, I mean, you would know as a communications professional, okay, this person's cooked. And And I'm fucked. uh, That's a a little bit, uh, we're we're on the podcast, so we're not on the air. You can drop F-bombs here, don't worry. I can. That's a little out of habit, but yeah, you you know that you're screwed. You know that there's no pathway forward for you. And to go into then Saturday, this is then where it becomes just embarrassing. So I had someone suggest to me, and you can jump in on this because I'm curious what your thoughts were, that one thing he could do is like sort of the West Wing type, go to a predominantly African-American church or some setting, say, you know, I beg forgiveness. I don't recall doing this. I understand it's insensitive, though, and the mere possibility that it happened. 
shows incredibly poor judgment in my youth, but I want to get through this and I want your forgiveness. And then basically take every single question that they throw at you until they're tired. Does that ever work, though, as a strategy? The situations are not completely analogous. But didn't Chris Christie do that as governor? Or Bridgegate, right? During Bridgegate, like he had like an 18 and a half hour long <laughs> press conference or something like that. And just in the purely beltway, reflexive commentary at media or whatever you want to call it, it did earn him at least plaudits for the moment where it was yeah, like, he wow, never, he handled that he, moment he, right. He, he stayed in office. Well. He never really survived politically, but he well, did stay in and office. And that also that makes a big difference. Keep in mind the governor of Virginia only gets the one term. Right. So yeah. there's not He's running a lame for, duck already. Uh, correct. Yeah. And so hypothetically, if that was not him, there could have possibly been a pathway forward. It would have been very difficult. I would say that would be a very small percentage and not realistic because of a couple of things. One, Virginia's history with race relations overall. Right. You look back at the timing of this, of what was going on in Virginia back in the 80s, as far as on race relations. But then also you look at more recently, the vivid and painful images that we saw from Charlottesville. And to come so close on the heels of that, as far as the revelations and of this, there's nowhere for the governor to go on this. But again, everything came back to that initial decision. Was it me? Was it you? And if you look at one of those images... No. no one in the world has to think twice about have you ever, you know, dressed up in, you know, horrific imagery. Have you ever painted your face like this? You know, right at the top. Which is why the press conference on Saturday was so bizarre. It's one thing to have that press conference and say, I don't think it was me. And but, you know, I know I impersonated Michael Jackson, which is weird. Don't get me wrong. But it's an yeah, entirely if you're, if you're invoking set- <laughs> Michael Jackson for any reason, it's for any weird. reason, it's weird. And that's, you're, but it's you're another failing. thing to have done it less than 24 hours after being like, I am really sorry about appearing in that picture. No one's going to believe you. You just don't have credibility if you're going to switch. But OK, was it the weirdest press conference? Let's play a couple other press conferences. Let's go with audio <laughs> number two. Unfortunately, the distraction that I have created has made that impossible. So today I am announcing my resignation from Congress. Yeah! All right. That's Anthony Weiner. That's actually the first weird press conference he held. That was when he left Congress. He held another one after he dropped out of the mayoral race. But let's go with audio number three now. For eight months leading up to June 11th, my family and I have been relentlessly and viciously, viciously harassed by the Idaho statesman. If you saw the article today, you know why. Let me be clear. I am not gay. I never have been gay. Still, without a shred of truth or evidence to the contrary, the statesman has engaged in this witch hunt. All right, so that's Larry Craig. For those who are too young, was caught, I guess, in a sting operation in a bathroom where he was tapping underneath the stall in a way that was assumed to be soliciting gay sex. I think that summarizes the scandal pretty well. All right. We have one instance where someone resigns during a scandal and another instance where someone says, fuck it, I'm going to just plow right through this. And I have a theory of the case, which is that in politics, basically you can always ride it out. You can just always ride it out unless someone's going to put like, an article of impeachment up, or you're going to be literally excommunicated from the House of Representatives. I feel like there is a appetite or a will for people to just move on to another subject and you can stick through it and get through it. Am I wrong? Depends if you have to come back up in front of the voters. 
Okay. That, that's what makes all the difference in the world. So well, like, if you're okay. talking about Governor I, Christie go ahead, go ahead. getting his criticism, if you're talking about, again, we talked about if Governor Northam had come out and said that this was not him and he had validators and people to back up that this was not him and he had never seen this before and he immediately denounced it, that's possibly once, which obviously did not happen. Senator Craig, I believe, ended up not running for re-election. I believe he served out his term then didn't run for re-election. But if you're facing the voters or you're coming back up, or say if you're in the corporate world and you then have your quarterly earnings, yeah. you have your, your shareholders, your investor relations aspect, that's in the same way as facing the voters that you have to come before them and, and discuss so this. So is your um, proposition here that like Bill Clinton, had he been caught in the Monica Lewinsky scandal in his first term, it would have been demonstrably different than the fact that it was the second term? Yeah, I think it would have been different. The scrutiny in which obviously was a huge national story, but you look going into the reelect in 1996, that would have dominated the entire race. Right. Everything would have been around. But that his specific. poll number has improved. My theory of the case is twofold. One is that the news cycle now, especially, just moves on so fast. And while everything seems apocalyptic in the moment, People basically get tired of reading the same thing and they go somewhere else. And the second thing is that eventually the opposition does kind of overreach a little bit and there's an, a sympathy element that comes in its place. I don't know if that's true in every scandal, but like, for instance, you know, the Kavanaugh effect, Clarence Thomas is on the court. David Vitter survived his scandals. Obviously, Bill Clinton survived his scandals. Donald Trump survived his scandals. And the people who leave... I guess to your point, they have to go in front of the voters. They don't want to do it again. Don Edwards moved to Neptune. Nobody's ever <laughs> seen him again. But, but again, it's do you have to face the voters? Do you have to face the shareholders? But also, too, it's that initial response of is this true or is this not true? And what path do you take it makes all the difference in the world. Got you. So you've done this a fair amount. I'm curious, what are the worst scandals you've had to maneuver through? Give us your greatest hits list. Feel free for the listeners who do not know to give them a little taste of your resume. Yeah. Because I think all they know right now is that you worked for Donald Trump. Yeah, let's go pre-Trump yeah. here. And so pre-Trump, uh, in addition to the president's historic 2016 win. We'll get there. Uh, which is great. <laughs> uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get to that. Uh, managed races for House and Senate and governor. I managed former governor and former congressman Mark Sanford's 2006 re-election campaign. But and that wasn't the... That, um, so that okay. was before the... Before uh, Argentina. Before the hiking, yes. Yeah. But it was before then I helped bring him back in 2013. And so I was kind of bookended on, on both sides of that. I also managed a campaign, Jack Ryan in Illinois. Explain in to the uninitiated how weird that campaign was. So Jack, who's a, a great guy and got absolutely slimed in that thing and it still disgusts me to this day and divorce records uh, right made uh, public custody filings custody filings okay. uh, right and so basically there are some messy things that got put in a custody filing and they were sealed and then basically on a friday the judge was you know these are sealed nothing's going to happen and then on the monday morning gave jack's attorney like 15 minutes heads up and said actually i think it's in the public interest i'm gonna go ahead and release these Ooh. and his former wife was jerry lynn ryan of course from, actress uh, actress from star trek and some other things and it basically blew up and in jack's race i think we need to get a little taste of what was in there i know it's graphic it, but it's important to the there were, there were some allegations of like different types of clubs and different personal life activities and Go, go on. No, <laughs> this is a no, PG-13 podcast. So there are a couple things there. So initially, you know, sitting down with the candidate and that, is this accurate? Is this not accurate? 
this At is that BS. point, it doesn't matter, though. It's in a file, right? Yeah, but it's out, and so it's blowing sure. up, and it's driving Chicago news, it's driving national news. But the very specific conversation that we had was the candidate had made a commitment about spending $3 million of his own money in the general election, and he wanted to – he genuinely was running for office for the right reasons. He wanted to push school choice, a number of big public policy ideas, running in Illinois as a Republican – and what he did not want to do was do the typical Republican slash and burn campaign. And so we sat down and basically the donors, and it was really the Republicans who started attacking in the, the most vocal way. And we sat down, had a conversation, said the fundraising is not going to be there for this campaign. So instead of spending $3 million, you're going to have to spend more like $10 million. And you're not going to be able to run this highbrow positive campaign, you're going to have to go absolute slash and burn to have a chance. And it's still Illinois in a presidential yeah. year. You still not be able to do it. Look, this is your life. We're looking at this from a crazy news cycle. I do think that there's a pathway to victory. You say this is BS. Here are the dynamics in which I think you're going to have to look at it. Sleep on it. Let's talk tomorrow. And we came back the next day and he said, not even so much a money thing, but he's like, I don't want my final memory as a candidate to be that I was the guy who went slash and burn going after Barack Obama because I was a general election opponent. <laughs> That's the kicker, and, right? Is that you? <laughs> it's so, Obama that you guys are. And right. <laughs> so all the Republicans who basically stuck the shiv in him, then they got Alan Keyes. So yeah, you know, congrats. And then congrats. Obama wins, yeah. and then congrats. four years later, yeah, congrats, Illinois. All right, time is passing so fast. We have to get to the greatest controversy, interesting moment of your political career, and since the theme is getting through scandal. You were there on the campaign in 2016 when the Billy Bush tape came out. Okay. So when, can you describe just that moment and what happened afterwards when the Billy Bush tape actually came out and just the sheer magnitude of the news story that it was? I remember just chilling out in the office with my colleagues. I forget what night it was, but like the sun had set or it, it was, was a setting. Friday. It was a Friday. Yeah. 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 It was a hell of a way to start a weekend. And suddenly we started seeing in our feeds on social media and Twitter, this Washington Post story. And suddenly we started seeing the word pussy and Donald Trump next together in a lot of screenshots and tweets. And we just kind of stared at our laptops collectively for a moment. It wasn't so much a grenade that had just been lobbed into the Trump campaign and Trump world that we were covering at the time. It was like at least four rocket launchers had been just completely aimed at Team Trump and set off. And it was as much of a mad dash as it was among the Washington Post competitors, as we, of course, were members of, and the rest of the news media trying to get their heads around this and advance the story and figure out what the hell is going on. I cannot imagine what it was like in those intervening minutes inside where you were sitting and standing, Jason. The one thing that I remember going back to it, the information came in and drips. You know, at first it was the reporter calling up and, you know, I have the story that I'm working on. Did then they be- call you first? That was Hope, Hope Hicks during the campaign. Then it became, here's the transcript. Then finally, here was the video before it came out. Obviously, we had a written statement that went out shortly afterwards, but we knew that we needed to put something out in the same medium where the cable news cycle would be putting things on a loop around the clock. And that's ultimately what led to then the president doing the response later that evening. Hold on, we have that audio. I've never said I'm a perfect person, nor pretended to be someone that I'm not. I've said and done things I regret. And the words released today on this more than a decade-old video are one of them. Anyone who knows me knows these words don't reflect who I am. All right, two questions for you. Because you said for Northam's people, the key point was figuring out, is this real? So was there a debate about the veracity of the video? 
I mean, once obviously, when when she had the video in front of you, that discussion went by and pretty pre- quick. And the then candidate, now president, never questioned whether it was him. Uh, there have been some some back and forth on that, and obviously, he's had some comments to it. But I think there was clearly different about this. Was you also have to look at the brand of the person who's in the moment at the time something like this is happening. And President Trump's brand was that he was the no nonsense, the straight shooter that he's going to go and give it to you. And the fact that he got out there in that news cycle, that he addressed it, that he took it head on, that he apologized for the words, that he said, anyone that knows me know this isn't how I talk. And then he went head to head on it. And then obviously added on some of his own twist on it with the locker room talk yeah. and things like that. But he remained consistent with his brand as far as taking the problem head on. He apologized for it. And well, that's not really his brand to apologize. That's distinct. Well, but but to take it on. I mean, he, to take it on there, is his brand, but saying I apologize for it was very unique for him. That part was very unique. I think that probably happens a lot more with other political figures. But the fact that he did apologize for it, I think, really made a big difference for people as they looked for that pathway for forgiveness or would they be willing to look past it, which obviously many did. voters did. Then my second question, and then I'll let Swin ask a bunch, is, you know, it was such a gross, awful, inhumane thing to say. It was disgusting. And I have wondered this for a while, which is, did anyone contemplate quitting, especially the female staffers? I can't speak for anybody else. Um, yeah, so I can't really speak for anyone else. We'll see maybe if there's Did it ever cross your mind? No. Okay. No. I mean, once uh, my viewpoint on this is that once you're on board with the team, you dive in and you've signed up to fight. It's your job to give them the best advice and the best strategy forward. In that moment, what was your advice? We got to get out there. We got to have something in the loop alongside this video. Was it you need to put out your own video? We talked through a number of different scenarios. Would there be an interview? Would there be a video? But we knew we had to get out in that same cycle. Any kind of press conference, one of them? You have to imagine that pretty much any idea that someone would think of it probably got exchanged. And do you know why you settled on video? Was it just because it was closed-circuited, he was the only messenger, no questions? That was the time issue. We had to turn around and get out the door. There was talk about doing other things potentially down the road or addressing things in additional. But I think the, the way that he did it, by getting video out there so then when they would run the loop, of the tape, then they'd have a loop of him in his own words, I think was the still looking back on it, I think was the smartest strategy. And obviously, it ultimately was successful for him. Sure. Do you remember any other specific nuggets of advice you gave then future President Trump as he went forward in the days in the aftermath of the Access Hollywood tape? Because obviously, not too long after that Washington Post story dropped, he was back on stage at a campaign rally saying something to the effect of when a subsequent female accuser came forward to say something about him. I forget what his exact words were, but it was something to the effect of, I would never grab her. I would never like, look at her. Right, right. I, I would did, never. Yeah. I, why would I ever touch her for any reason, which is not exactly what you want your candidate to say in that sort of tumultuous situation. So I think I'm safely assuming you probably didn't advise him to say anything like that. Correct me if you think I'm wrong. But in those intervening days, do you remember what other instances you had of advising him of how to handle the fallout? On something like this, that's this personal, or when you're the one who's being attacked, you're the one in the crosshairs, especially when you've worked for President Trump, the thing you figure out pretty quickly is that he has a good idea how he wants to frame and how he wants to say things. And 
you might be giving him advice on the delivery method. You might give him some advice around the margins about maybe the best audience to go and give this to. But as far as it is core, he knew what he wanted to say. He's not the type of person that you go and script something out and hand it to him and say, here's your heartfelt apology. Right. He knows what yeah. he's going to say, and it's your job to help him implement that. And he said it, and he became president, and he's been serving for president for two years now. So, which brings us to modern day. We'll just skip. <laughs> we'll just skip over all that. We got a State of the Union coming tomorrow. How do you think he's going to approach this? You know, Trump is Trump. I feel like he kind of likes hitting the same notes. There's all this perpetual waiting for him to moderate a little bit, soften a little bit. But he is who he is. The State of the Union is a chance for him to do something slightly different on a national stage, but. Should we have any expectations that he'll do something different than he's been doing for the past two years? You know, I think it's important to look at the context for the State of the Union. I mean, this is really the first campaign speech of the 2020 election cycle. We have a number of Democratic candidates who have now announced. We have a president who's coming off the shutdown, and obviously we're still in the middle of this border wall fight. I think that as president, and looking at this as a campaign speech in 2020, you got to do a couple of things. Number one, you have to demonstrate vision. You have to remind people that in that setting, you're the only one in the country who can get in that setting and do that. Kamala Harris can't do that. Cory Booker can't do that. President Trump is the only person who can get up there and do it. So when you talk about demonstrating vision, yes, we have some of the more immediate things where we talk about foreign policy. We talk about troop movements. We talk about the American economy, the success of that. I think if the president is going to be ultimately successful, he needs to recapture some of the 2016 themes we haven't seen as much. So when he talks about infrastructure, for example, he's got to tie that back into African-Americans in the inner city and rebuilding America's core. I think that's going to be more of the aspirational type approach on this. But the other thing, too, in addition to demonstrating- we We saw that a little bit yesterday during his Face the Nation interview where he framed his foreign policy decisions as bringing money back to America, you know, being in Afghanistan for 19 years, let's bring our troops back. We're spending so much money over there. And that is the theme that he really hammered in the 2016 election. He kind of got away from, I feel like, as he went on these tangential issues. And you think about a number of the global competitiveness angles. We talk about, obviously, the trade dispute that we're in right now with China, but then also the trade issues with the EU and trying to get the USMCA approved. So the demonstrating vision part is key. But the other thing, too, and I think this has been lost a little bit in some of the preview stories over the weekend, you have to pick some fights. And you have to. And that is both how you differentiate yourself between the other candidates who are in, but also in firing up the base. I think the president Mm -hmm. needs to lay down the rationale and the predicate for why a national emergency could ultimately be called. Well, let's on the stop wall. you right there because we have a little audio from him yesterday talking about this. Would you shut down the government again? Well, we're going to have to see what happens on February 15th. And You're not taking I, it off I think, the table. Well, I don't, I don't take anything off the table. I don't like to take things off the table. Uh, it's that alternative. It's national emergency. It's other things. And, you know, there have been plenty national emergencies called And this really is an invasion of our country by human traffickers. All right. So it seems like he's laying the predicate for calling it. I mean, obviously, there's a contradiction here that he's waited weeks and weeks and weeks to call a national emergency. Although the one thing I'd say on that, the one thing I'd say on that conventional wisdom, yes, or conventional analysis, I think that would be accurate. (laughs) Where I would disagree is there's a little bit of the winning by losing in this on the initial outcome of the shutdown for the simple fact that the president came back and said, 
I'm not playing politics here. I'm not going to go and fight this. We're going to reopen the government. We're going to keep everything moving. But I want to see this commission come together. I want to see yeah. uh, some ideas and some solutions. And the fact that the Democrats won't give him any room at all, that they won't come back and say that there's any sort of national emergency at the border, no money for wall funding, I think is going to really help the president if he does declare a national emergency, because he will have the moral Jason, high ground on this. How can you declare a national emergency after waiting five weeks? I mean, isn't the whole point of an emergency that's an emergency? For people who are living near the border of angel moms, I mean, they would obviously look at this and say, this is a, so a national emergency. Done this, he should have done this five weeks ago then. I would have preferred if he had done it sooner, but I think also the fact that he has the State of the Union to help lay down that case, if he does decide, that's something that's available to him that wouldn't be available to, say, other political Fair figures. All right, we got to wrap it up a little bit, but this podcast is being recorded the morning after the most boring Super Bowl, <laughs> the most predictable, boring, awful Super Bowl. Future sec def Tom in, Brady. In modern Super Bowl history, saying literally. About the, saying that about the halftime show also? The halftime yes. show oh, was 100%. not boring. It was just bad. Could we not have gotten more big boy, though? I know, right? <laughs> and where's Andre 3000? Well, he he did not do it out of protest, I believe, for Colin uh -huh. Kaepernick. So. But yeah, big boy came in. It looked like there was going to be a little big, big boy. And then like Adam Levine just decided, I'm going to strut around shirtless with some guitar. I'm clearly not playing and dance with big boy. And I was just disappointed by the whole thing. Anyways. I believe you have a Tom Brady story to share with us. <laughs> so obviously I loved working for the president in 2016. It was, I believe, Brady's birthday. Tom Brady's birthday, I think, is in August, early, mid-August, something like that. We're traveling, and Hope reminded the president that it was Brady's birthday. And so the president's like, oh, well, I got to give him a call. I wish him happy birthday. He's the greatest of all time. So the president picks up the phone, and he calls Brady, gets his voicemail. I think they just started training camp or something like that. And the first 30 seconds was pretty conventional. And he's, you know, hey, Tom, this is Donald. You're the greatest of all time. I see what they're saying. You might play into your 40s. I'm not sure if that's accurate. I think you could play till you're 50. You're the greatest of all time. And I think at that point, I believe he had four rings, and he hadn't won these last two. But he's going through, just giving the story, you know, again, it's a voicemail that he's leaving for him. <laughs> and you're the greatest of all time. You're the best. I hope you're having a great birthday. You're such a great person. There's only one thing you weren't able to do. And it kind of pauses, you know, and I'm just kind of looking at my phone or something like that. And I kind of ears perk up. I'm like, wait, what's this? And he goes, Ivanka chose Jared. He's like, that's the, oh, that's <laughs> the only thing that, uh, that you, you weren't able to win at. And he's like, don't get me wrong, Tom. He's like, you know, you ended, you ended up doing okay. And obviously he's laughing at this point. Like he's being yes. very funny. Uh, but he goes, that's it, Tom. Greatest of all time. Just, you know, one thing that you couldn't win at, but that's okay. Was but, Jared he, there? No, no. Okay, good. But it was, <laughs> but it was, but it was absolutely his, and he's just like, uh, saying, Tom, you're the best. You're the greatest of all time. He's like, I hope I get to see you soon. Go out there and win another Super Bowl this year. Has and Ivanka heard this story? Is this a podcast exclusive? I, I want to make sure to tag her on the tweet when we send this out. It was, it was, <laughs> it was pretty funny. It was lighthearted. But just the, the funny way That's that hilarious. the president said, he's like, you know, Jared won, yeah. uh, not you. And it Do you was, think Brady call him back? Do we know? I have no idea. Oh, uh, wait, sorry. Was <laughs> Where were you traveling to? Do you remember which day and what campaign rally? And was this in a car? Was it on Trump Force One? Uh, we were in the car traveling. That's but an amazing it was, story, Jason. But it was pretty funny. It was, it was lighthearted. <laughs> and, and that's one of the things when you work for the president, you realize he's, he's right. always busting people's chops and having fun. Yeah, he seems like he'd and, be like a really good wedding MC. You know, like he <laughs> tells good like wedding jokes. He's funny. He ribs people. He does it really well. 
But it was. I'll give him that. <laughs> it, it was funny. It was, it was one of the funnier things that, that I've ever heard. It was pretty good. What yeah. was the exact quote again? Oh, about, I don't, I don't, don't worry about it. I don't worry about the exact quote, but it was. Thank uh, you, man. I appreciate yeah, it. It was fun. All right, Jason Miller, thank you for joining the podcast. A reminder, you can get this on iTunes, DailyBeast.com, Google Play, any other place you buy, purchase, listen to your podcasts, and tell everyone to give us five-star ratings, because we're the best podcast out there, and share word of Omnishamble's existence to your friends, your family, just random strangers as well. Until next week, thanks for joining us. Take care. Bye.